0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz details what investors should have on their radar for mid-year portfolio reviews. Sarah Bush highlights three individuals awarded for investing excellence. Jackie Cook breaks down the basics and importance of proxy voting. Ben Johnson discusses how fund fees have contracted in recent years. And Russ Kendall shares his favorite foreign large value funds. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. It may seem difficult to believe, but we're almost at the halfway point of 2020. And this is the time of year when investors take a look at their portfolios and do a mid-year portfolio check-in. Given how volatile the market has been this year, we're going to have a talk today with Christine Benz, our Director of Personal Finance, to get her take on what we should be looking at as we do our check-ins this year. Christine, thank you for joining us today. Susan, it's great to be here. Now, it certainly has been a bumpy ride this year. What should we have on our radars as as we're starting to take a look at our portfolios?
2: Well, I always like the idea of putting a kind of a wellness check at the top of the list if you're looking at a portfolio checkup. Start with the health of your plan. So if you're someone who's in accumulation mode, the key metric there is that you're looking at your savings rate. Obviously, we're in an environment where a lot of people have seen income disruptions, so maintaining a savings rate in line with what you had hoped to do at the outset of this year may not be uh, attainable, but if you are still employed and still on track with your savings, look at whether you are on track to max out your tax-advantaged vehicles if you can, just check up on how you're doing in terms of your retirement trajectory. If you're someone who's already retired, the key metric of your plan's health is your withdrawal rate. And we have seen a great snapback in the equity market, so a lot of portfolios have made a great comeback as well. That means that um, perhaps the warning lights aren't necessarily flashing in terms of reducing withdrawals, but I think retirees want to be mindful of that idea, especially if they're just embarking on retirement. And the key reason is that we've seen yields drop really low on bonds and certainly on cash. And that means that the raw materials for balanced portfolio returns may not be that great over the next decade. So check your withdrawal rate. Uh, We did an interview with Wade Fow, who is one of the gurus in in retirement research and on uh, retirement withdrawal rates specifically. And he argued that 3% as a starting withdrawal rate is safe for new retirees. Take a look at where you are coming out in terms of your spending so far six months into the year.
1: And uh, the next step you recommend is that people take a look at their asset allocation, specifically at their allocation to sort of those safer, more conservative investments. What should we be thinking about here?
2: Absolutely. It's a great time to check up on your portfolio's cash reserves, your liquid assets that you could draw upon in a pinch. We've certainly seen in stark relief through this crisis where people have had income disruptions, income losses, they've lost their jobs. So for people who are still in their accumulation years, it really is well worth checking to see how you're doing with respect to your emergency fund, the standard rule of thumb has been three to six months worth of living expenses that you have parked in highly liquid assets. I would say for some workers, maybe contract workers, people working in the gig economy, we see through this crisis how that should probably be a larger number for a lot of households. So check up on your cash reserves. If you're someone who's retired, you need cash too. I would argue that uh, retirees should think about having a couple of years worth of portfolio withdrawals parked in safe assets. The idea is that if it's not a great time to withdraw from stocks, it's maybe not a great time to withdraw from bonds, you'll have your cash reserves that you can draw upon instead. So um, take a look at those cash reserves. Make sure that you have those liquid assets.
1: And pivoting a little bit now to those longer term assets, what should we have on our radars there? And are there any particular benchmarks or or guideposts that we should be looking at?
2: Here I think our x-ray functionality that we have on Morningstar's Portfolio Manager tool is really invaluable in terms of getting your arms around your total portfolios asset allocation so take a look at that if you have not made any changes recently or even for a few years you may find that your portfolio is actually too aggressive given your life stage especially if you're someone who is within uh, a, maybe a decade of retirement or certainly someone who is within a few years of retirement you do need to de-risk the portion of your portfolio that you expect to spend from soon. So take a look at that asset allocation using x-ray. You might use a target date fund, especially if you're a younger accumulator, to try to make sure that your asset allocation is in the right ballpark. For younger investors, they probably will find that target date funds are recommending 80-90 percent in equities, and certainly if they can withstand the volatility that comes along with a higher equity allocation, they should be up in that very high range of equity exposure, mainly because bond yields are really low today, and that foretells pretty poor returns from bonds over the next decade. So in addition to sort
1: of that stocks, bonds mix, that that overarching asset allocation that we'd look at, what are some of the other things we should go a little bit more deeply into the portfolio and, and look at?
2: Well, here again, I think X-Ray can help you get your arms around your portfolio's investment style exposure. We're in this period where we've seen absolutely tremendous performance from large growth stocks, technology stocks in particular, those big name tech tech stocks have really been pacing the market. If we haven't been paying close attention, our portfolios may be drifting up in terms of their exposure to that top right hand square of the style box. So take a look at that. Take a look at whether your portfolio isn't disproportionately skewing toward large growth stocks. Also look at your portfolio's geographic exposure because we've generally seen US stocks outpace foreign stocks year-to-date, younger investors especially, but really investors at all life stages should have ample allocations to non-US stocks as well as US stocks. And finally, take a look at individual stock exposure. Certainly if you have employer stock, it can become easy to be overweighted in your employer's stock, and if you're lucky enough to still have a job, you probably don't want too much of your financial wherewithal riding on your employer's fortunes. So drill into the asset allocation, drill underneath asset allocation to look at some of these other factors as well.
1: And you know, we talk at Morningstar a lot about costs and how costs over time can really erode your returns. So how can we incorporate a cost audit into our mid-year
3: checkups?
2: Right. Our colleague Ben Johnson just put out a great report looking at the trends in fund fees and what we see is that fund fees are coming down and investors are choosing cheaper funds. So if you haven't taken a closer look at your portfolio with respect to how much you're paying in mutual fund fees, take a look at that. It may be that you can obtain the same exposure at a lower cost by swapping into a broad market index fund or an ETF or a cheaper active fund if you prefer to go the active route Look at the whole gamut of costs, though. Don't just start with start and end with fund fees. Look at how much you're paying financial advisors, how much you're paying in brokerage commissions. Also take a look at implicit costs that you might be paying. So we talked about how low yields are today on cash. Well, they're especially low in certain types of accounts. Brokerage sweep accounts, I would point out, have notoriously high costs and low yields. So if you have cash holdings in your account, make sure that that you're not ceding too big a share of your yield to expenses.
1: And lastly, Christine, you've, you've talked before about the importance of tax efficiency, and how can we perhaps be thinking about taxes or doing a tax audit as part of a mid-year portfolio checkup?
2: Right. Do a quick review of this and mainly that starts with looking at whether you are taking maximum advantage of those tax sheltered accounts that you have available. So IRAs, you actually have until July 15th to make an IRA contribution for 2019. So take a look at that. Take a look at how you're funding your company retirement plan. Also take a look at whether if you have non-retirement, non-tax sheltered accounts, whether you are investing those as tax efficiently as possible. So do you have index funds there? If you have uh, bonds in your taxable account and you're in a high tax bracket, do municipal bonds make more sense for you? And finally, one thing we've been hearing a lot about from planners we talk to is the idea of looking at Roth conversions in 2020. I would say retired investors who don't have to take their required minimum distributions this year are particularly good candidates for taking a look at whether conversions might be in order, might make sense for them. That particularly makes sense for people who have IRA assets that they don't expect to spend during their lifetimes where they're saving in those accounts mainly for for their heirs. In that situation, get some tax advice and see whether converting part of those assets might make sense for you.
1: Christine, thank you so much for the concrete steps that we can take to make sure our portfolios are on track mid-year. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. Thank you for tuning in.
0: Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. and Sarah Bush from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm
2: Christine Benz for Morningstar. Morningstar recently named the winners of its Awards for Investing Excellence, selecting three winners in three categories. Joining me to discuss the award winners is Sarah Bush. She's Morningstar's Director of Manager Research for North America. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Christine. Sarah, let's start by discussing the thesis behind these awards. What are you and the team trying to do by making these awards each year?
4: Sure. So what we're looking to do is to recognize extraordinary investors, recognize commitments to shareholder best interests, and also those who have been willing to differ from the consensus. The awards, uh, the first two awards honor portfolio managers. And the first is the Outstanding Portfolio Manager Award. You can think of this as a lifetime achievement award. We're looking to honor a manager who has really produced exceptional results for investors over the long haul. The second award to portfolio manager is the rising talent award. So here we're looking for someone who is earlier in their career, a manager who has less than seven years of experience, um, who's already shown um, exceptional promise and generated strong results, but kind of looking ahead to their promise as they go through their career. The final award is our exemplary stewardship award, and here we really are looking at the asset manager, um, and we really want to identify asset managers who've shown, you know, an unwavering focus on investor interests, um, which is very important as we kind of look at our methodology and understand what drives good fund performance over time.
2: So let's take a look at the Exemplary Stewardship Award. There were three nominees for 2020. They included T. Rowe Price, Capital Group, which is the parent company of the American Funds, as well as Dodge & Cox. Let's talk about the award winner in this category.
4: So the award winner is T. Rowe Price. And we've awarded um, this, this honor to T. Rowe Price to recognize its strong investment culture. That's allowed to, to flourish in a very difficult environment for active managers. Um, T. Rowe Price is an Equity powerhouse, um, and also has bought, built a very strong target date franchise. Investors in its funds have benefited from long tenured managers. They've been very thoughtful about manager transitions, managing capacity, um, and and just you know investment um, alongside investors along share, alongside shareholders. One of the stories that came out um, as we were talking about T. Rowe Price, which I thought was really interesting, is that David Giroux, who is a portfolio manager and head of investment strategy at the firm, recently led a firm-wide initiative to look at how, um, how to improve the life of analysts. And this is a firm that has, you know, one of the things we think is really impressive about it is it really does have this very deep analyst bench. So we went out and spent a huge amount of time talking to people across the firm and came out of that experience with some very concrete measures um, a couple that our analysts have told us about are you know finding ways to find deep thought time during the day so you're not you know just when you're disconnected from um, email and from other potential distractions and also just sort of solidifying expectations around you know what needs to go in an analyst note and how analysts and portfolio manager interactions happen. So that's just an example. You know this is a firm that has really innovated, puts a very high emphasis um, on that investment culture and getting it right and really to has it you know thinks it's very important can build our analysts and portfolio managers can invest it can work and invest across their entire careers.
2: Now let's talk about the award for rising talent there were four nominees in this category they included John Dance from Fidelity, Wyatt Lee from T. Rowe Price, John McClain from Diamond Hill as well as Mohit Matal from PIMCO who was the winner in this category Sarah?
4: So, the winner was Mohit Mattal. Um, he's named a manager on a number of strategies, including PIMCO Investment Grade Corporate, where he's been since 2016, and it was actually recently, um, in late 2019, named as Portfolio Manager on PIMCO Total Return, which is a very well-known um, fund, very important to the PIMCO franchise, obviously, and I think that speaks to the confidence um, that the firm has in Mohit. Um, what we see in him, so Mohit is the firm's corporate credit, uh, leads the corporate credit portfolio manager team, um, and has really... done a lot, both sort of as an individual investor, but also to build that team's capability, both to dig deep and find ideas that work in smaller um, corporate dedicated strategies, but also to think about how to leverage the firm's corporate research to make decisions that impact the larger, more diversified portfolios, such as PIMCO Total Return. I mean, he's very, very much impressed us in his time managing money. Um, our analysts point to his analytical talent, his quantitative skills, and drive. It's been key to his success at PIMCO, and we all know that PIMCO is a famously competitive organization. So those those skills and talents have served him well in his career so far, and I, I think will in
2: the years to come. Now let's discuss the Outstanding Portfolio Manager Award, which you describe as being akin to a Lifetime Achievement Award. There were five nominees in this category, Chuck Akre. Joel Tillinghast from Fidelity, Mary Ellen Stanek from Baird, Jerome Clark from T Rowe Price, as well as TCW's fixed income management team. Let's uh, talk about the winners in this area.
4: So the winner was
2: Jerome Clark. So Jerome Clark is a pioneer
4: of the target date industry. He helped build T. Rowe Price's target date lineup um, starting in 2002, when there were still just a handful of target date funds. Our analysts cited his commitment to innovation and also the research-driven decisions that that team makes into asset allocation. So over his time running the funds, he took them from a fairly straightforward mix of U.S. stocks and bonds to a much more globally diversified portfolio. Those were all very well-researched and documented decisions as they made those tweaks along the way. Um, Through that time, a hallmark of the funds has been a high allocation to equities. Um, And, you know, that really reflects uh, Clark's view and the team's view that the biggest risk to retirees is that they – Do have a savings shortfall that they outlive their savings, so that's been something that's been very important. He's been a a steady hand um, running these funds. You know, he managed them through the global financial crisis, which was obviously a difficult time to have a lot of your target date fund in equities. And you know, I think he was a steadying presence during that time, and actually took up the opportunity to opportunistically um, add to those the fund's equity allocations during that time, um, which obviously turned out to be a very good decision, and is a big one of the big drivers of the strong records that those funds do hold today. So overall, this is you know, a, a series that has top-notch returns, and you know today it has more than $200 billion of assets. So the strength of the calls that he's made has really had a wide impact on a lot of different investors and their retirement savings.
2: So overall, a really worthy slate of nominees and award winners. Sarah, thank you so much for being here to share them with us today.
4: Thank you very much for having me, Christine.
2: Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.
0: Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date, independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Tom Lorisella of Morningstar Inc. and Jackie Cook for Morningstar Research Services.
5: This is Tom Lorisella for Morningstar. And I'm here with Jackie Cook, Director of Stewardship Research at Morningstar, to discuss how proxy voting works and why it matters. Jackie, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. So let's start off with the basics. Um you know, proxy voting is something that can be a little bit inside baseball when it comes to the investing world. Uh, many investors might come across the term here or there. Um, At the same time, it's something that, uh, even if it's not the most common term among uh, individual investors, uh, that is becoming more and more important in the investing world at large. So, um, why don't we start off by just explaining a little bit about how proxy voting works and what it is?
3: Proxy voting gives investors voice. Um, It gives them a say in the governance of companies in which they invest, in their portfolios, Um, Most classes of equity shareholding um, give investors some sort of voting rights, and these rights can be used um, to cast votes on proxy ballots that um, companies issue before annual and special meetings. And typically, these ballots contain a variety of items that help investors shape corporate governance and strategy at the companies.
5: So, Proxy voting, is. is, could it just be simply another way to say that as a shareholder in a stock, um, you're able to vote um, in how that company is run? Is it really just as simple as that, even if the word proxy might be a little confusing?
3: Yeah, so the word proxy really is... um you know, it's a—it's the default. So very few shareholders show up at the annual general meeting in person to cast their votes. They usually cast their votes by proxy, by mail or online. And so the term proxy voting is really the default term for shareholder democracy, I guess.
5: Got it. So if I invest through mutual funds, uh, how does proxy vo- voting work there? I don't um, actually own these stocks uh, in my own account. Um, I probably don't get uh, these I'm not going to be actually getting these ballots mailed to me. Um, how does it work in that case?
3: Well, yeah, so that's a good question because, as a fund shareholder, you don't actually hold the vote. um your fund holds the vote and votes and casts that vote on your behalf um and your fund is obligated to cast that vote in your best interests um, as a fiduciary. Um, so often, what happens with funds is well, voting is actually a strategy that sits more at the um, at the fund provider level, at the asset manager level. So individual funds in which you invest, their voting strategy will align more with the voting position of the of the asset manager offering that um, fund. Sorry, I should just point out, you know, with with respect to index funds. Um, the the degree to which individual fund managers will have and um, will have sway over that vote is is um, far reduced because voting strategy is typically much more centralised.
5: So the key here is that when I own a mutual fund, the mutual fund company is casting those votes uh, on my behalf and on my interest, um, and and so if I have if I'm an investor. Um, with a particular point of view on anything, it, it's really going to be in the fund manager's hands. Um, it's it's going to be their view on how to handle a particular situation at a company. That's right. Okay. So how about if you give us some examples of uh, proxy voting resolutions that uh, can hopefully uh, shed a little bit more light on uh, what this term means?
3: Right, on how shareholders are able to have an impact on corporate governance. So, you know, if you take a proxy ballot, let's take just a typical proxy ballot that would be issued prior to an annual general meeting of a large public company. That ballot uh, probably contains around 15 items, uh, 10 of which would be, approximately 10 of which would be um, electing the directors of the, uh, the board of directors. Um, Usually, companies um, offer investors an advisory vote on executive compensation, Um, and and on every annual general meeting ballot, you'll also see an item that um, gives investors an opportunity to ratify the selection of the auditor for the following fiscal year. On many large um, public company ballots, you'll also see items that are placed on the ballot by shareholders. Um, And these are items that more specifically get to the governance of environmental and social risks at the company. So whereas um, you can shape corporate governance by voting across um, the board of directors um, and voting uh, a thumbs up or a thumbs down on executive pay, the, uh, the ability of shareholders to file shareholder resolutions and have those appear on the corporate ballot really helps shareholders shape the, um, the conversation around corporate governance and the governance of environmental and social risks.
5: So, um, in, uh, investors may have now heard the term sustainable investing. Um, how does proxy voting relate back to su- uh, sustainable investing, and can you give us some examples of some um, resolutions that might be related to that particular area.
3: Right, so um, sustainable investing, um, so proxy voting isn't necessarily sustainable investing, um, but it's certainly an essential part of sustainable investing. It's hard to argue that you're a sustainable investor if you're not taking um, into account the impact of your proxy votes. Um, And I'll give you some examples, you know, even if you're casting your proxy votes across management ballot items, you're still shaping um, how well a company manages environmental and social risks. Um, You know, there are examples of where shareholders have run campaigns against certain boards of, uh, against certain directors up for nomination um, for a board, where that director has failed to navigate important social and environmental risks on behalf of the company, or where, for instance, um, executive pay might be completely out of whack with the median worker pay at that company. Um, so it's important that um, to make the point that proxy voting across the ballot is a con- is a, a question of sustainable investing, and particularly when we get to the shareholder resolutions on the ballot, there you see these issues being more explicitly dealt with. And I'll give you some examples of the issues that come up, you know, one very important issue for shareholders um, is how companies are preparing for the low carbon transition. So um, many shareholder resolutions ask companies to set and disclose what their greenhouse gas emission reduction targets are. Another group of um, shareholder resolutions ask companies for transparency into their um, corporate political influence, how they spend corporate money lobbying, um, or contributing to campaigns and their affiliations with trade union or, uh, sorry, their affiliations with trade associations that um, that do this lobbying on their behalf. Um, so trade associations have been, um, you know, have been lobbying actively against work, uh, worker protections and climate policy. So this is a, one area in which sustainable investors want to be really mindful Um, And, you know, some other examples are diversity, workforce diversity, um, gender pay equity. These are all the types of issues that come up for vote on proxy ballots.
5: Okay. So does proxy voting make a difference?
3: Yes, it does. So, I mean, a lot of folks have looked into, um, a lot of academics have looked into the impact of proxy voting. and. You know, often it's not easy to say this particular vote caused this particular change at a company or this particular change within the market. It's an iterative process, and a lot of shareholders who run um, shareholder resolution filing campaigns, for instance, take a long view of their campaigns. Um, But proxy voting does make a difference. It's about investor vigilance, and therefore it benefits the entire market to have um, investors that are monitoring what's going on at the company and how all well the company is managed. Um, and it's um, and it's part of the ecosystem of checks and balances. So, for instance, it's not the only way that investors can influence um, corporate governance at companies. Another way is by engaging directly in dialogue with the company. But, of course, the vote underscores the, the um, position that an investor has in dialogue with the, with the um, management of the company.
5: So, um, for the individual investor then, um, who might be, who's watching this, um, then the question is: um, How how do I make a difference? How can I have an impact um, anywhere in this process?
3: Yeah, and that's that's a good question because you know more and more people are more and more people want their investments to align with their values. You know, and so you want to invest, for instance, in a sustainable fund. Well you know, if you look closely at the fund's proxy voting record, you want to see that that proxy voting record aligns with your values as well. And sometimes it doesn't. And then you want to consider, am I in the right fund? Um, For investors that, um, you know, are in index funds, for instance, and they have choices between some very similarly um, shaped index funds, um, you know, when you start looking at the Proxy votes, of the that the funds cast, you see that they actually can be quite different um, in their voting on sustainability, or in the impact that their votes have on um, sustainability. So, um, so it is important to know the votes, know the votes that your fund is casting on your behalf. And when you know those votes, and you, and for instance, you might feel that these votes should be cast um, differently. Reach out to the fund manager or the asset manager. Make your views known. Um, There is an interesting platform uh, called yourstake.org that facilitates this kind of communication between the fund investor and and the fund itself. Um, And then thirdly, vote with your feet. You know, if you're not happy with how your fund's um, voting, if you really are concerned about, for instance, climate change, and you're concerned that um, companies are not moving quickly enough on climate change, and your fund... Voted against a climate resolution, a resolution asking an oil and gas company to um, be transparent about how it intends to um, uh, reduce its carbon emissions, then you know you may just want to look for an alternative fund.
5: Great, thanks very much, Jackie. This has been very helpful. Um, Jackie Cook, director of stewardship research. Thank you for being here today.
3: My pleasure.
0: Now, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses how fund fees have contracted in recent years.
2: Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Fund fees have been declining for two decades and that trend has been accelerating in recent years. Joining me to provide some color on Morningstar's just released fund fee study is Ben Johnson. He's Morningstar Director of Global ETF Research. Ben, thank you so much for being here.
6: Thanks for having me, Christine.
2: So, Ben, um, let's talk about the trend toward lower fees and put some historical context around it. Um, you say that the asset typical asset-weighted fee that investors pay is the lowest that it's been since the turn of the millennium. Let's talk about where they were then, where they were 10 years ago, um, and how that compares to where we are today.
6: Well, if you look at the asset-weighted average fee across all funds in 2019, it stood at 0.45%. And that is nearly half of what it was going back two decades ago. It's 38% lower than it was going back just one decade ago. So while this is a trend that's been in place now for about 20 years, it's really accelerated. It's gathered a head of steam over the course of the past
2: 10. Okay, so you look at average asset weighted fees and there are really two components to that. One is that the, it's the fees that funds are charging, but also investor choice. And so let's talk about what has been the bigger driver of this trend toward lower asset weighted fees.
6: The biggest driver is, is, has been investor choice. It, it's been a very democratic process. Investors of all stripes have been voting with their investment dollars and allocating more of those at the margin towards lower cost funds or lower cost share classes. Now, if you look underneath the surface of the broader trend, there's some smaller trends afoot that have have helped this to to gather momentum. Uh, One of those, I, I think very importantly, is an evolution we've seen in the advice space, most notably the evolution of the economic model of advice as more and more advisors have moved from transaction-driven commission-based models of conducting their business towards fee-based advice models, they've preferred to use lower cost funds on behalf of their clients. They've also been generally preferring to use lower cost share classes, share classes that don't have embedded in their fees some component that goes to compensating the advisor and, and not necessarily the portfolio manager or the asset manager that's manufactured that investment product. The other important trend we've seen is is the evolution of the retirement savings space. And increasingly what you see is that many Americans in their 401k plans are opting into a default option that oftentimes is a target date fund that's made up of very low cost index mutual funds. Which now comprise the majority of all target date uh, fund retirement assets. So the, these two big trends, uh, one in the advice space, the other in the retirement space, I, I think are, are further adding fuel to just a, a general widespread adoption of, of investors preferring low cost funds. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that the cat's out of the bag, that investors more broadly are realizing that every penny they pay out in fees is a penny that goes to someone else. It doesn't compound to their own benefit between now and, and whenever they are, um, you know, going to, to withdraw those funds to spend against their long-term goals.
2: One cautionary note that you sounded in the report was that even though fund fees paid by investors have been declining, all-in fees may not necessarily be declining. So let's talk about that aspect of this trend.
6: I think it's important that that investors understand that not all of these fees are are just simply dissipating. They're not evaporating out into the atmosphere. They're not necessarily pocketing each and every penny uh, that's come out of fund fees. Some of these fees might be in, in certain circumstances simply getting displaced. And I think most prominently this could be the case in certain advisory relationships. So for those investors who are working with an advisor, Some of the fees that they may have been paying directly in the form of fund fees may actually just be going from one pocket to another and now getting paid out as advice fees. So I think it's important that investors ask pointed questions of their advisors, ask them how they're getting paid, how much they're getting paid, and and what exactly they're paying them for to understand how much of these headline savings are actually accruing to their benefit.
2: Now we've seen this market sell-off, certainly in the first quarter, the market recovered now some volatility again. How do you expect that to affect the trend toward lower fee funds?
6: I think the sell-off we've seen in the first quarter of this year, if anything, might only further accelerate this trend. Effectively what the downdraft in the market did was give many investors a a get out of jail free card of, of sorts. There were many investors that for years now in in a long bull market had been locked up in positions and funds where they had large embedded taxable gains. We saw many investors take the opportunity that was presented to them as painful as it might have been to sell some of those positions during the market downdraft to realize some uh, tax losses in the process and, and reallocate some of that money towards lower cost funds. So if anything, I, I think at the margin, episodes like we experienced in the first quarter of 2020 serve to only further accelerate this trend towards lower cost funds.
2: What do you think the future holds in this space? Do you think that um, the excess has been wrung out already or do you think that there's more uh, gas left in the tank in this trend toward lower fund fees?
6: Well, I think there's still plenty of gas left in the tank, Christine. Uh, certainly, if, if you look out over the funds landscape, there's uh, you know, billions of dollars that are, are still invested in relatively high cost funds, which isn't necessarily bad. There are funds out there that uh, you know, deliver value for their investors and, and take a, a fair share in, in fees. But nonetheless, I, I think this trend will only continue. I think many funds will have to take a long, hard look at their fees to be competitive and ultimately cut them. And what we're seeing also is that uh, more and more asset managers are experimenting with a variety of different things. On on the one hand, we're seeing experimentation in the form of different fee structures, be those performance-based fees or in some cases more recently, uh, effectively a a loyalty fee program whereby fees will ratchet lower for investors each year that they hold uh, a given fund. On the other hand, we're seeing asset managers experiment with new formats. Uh, Notably, this year, we've seen a raft of new launches of actively managed, non-transparent ETFs, uh, which are much more fee efficient and potentially much more tax efficient than traditional open-ended mutual funds. So I, I think the trend that's been in place now for the past two decades will only continue. And I think the asset management industry will continue to evolve. And I think net-net, the benefit will to continue to accrue to investors is asset, manage, asset management firms compete for their hard-earned savings. Uh, in, investors have a lot to celebrate.
2: Okay, Ben, lots of data, lots of research packed into this report. Thank you so much for being here to discuss it with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.
0: Expand your investing horizons and look to The Long View with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. And lastly, here's Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services.
2: Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. For investors looking to reposition their portfolios after a strong rally in U.S. growth stocks, a couple of themes stand out, foreign stocks and value. Joining me to discuss why those areas might be worth a look, as well as to share a few picks that converge around those themes, is Russ Kinnell. He's Morningstar's Director of Manager Research. Russ, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. So Russ, let's kind of take these one by one. Um, starting with value, value of course, has been under a cloud for the better part of a decade. Why should investors make sure that their portfolios have at least some exposure to value stocks?
7: Yeah, I think uh, value looks terrible right now anyway you slice it uh, the, the gap particularly between small value and small growth, but even large value and large growth is enormous. Uh, and obviously, there's some good reasons for it. So, for instance, the, the companies like Amazon and Google are just taking away businesses left and right. Really, you think about retailers and the value side fighting with Amazon on the growth side, and we know who's winning that, uh, as well as uh, now we have a recession on, and that means uh, value stocks tend to be much more economically sensitive. You think about a lot of manufacturers as well as banks, uh, and, and so... Uh, they're all having a hard time. And really, from the last bear market back in 09, growth has just crushed value. So uh, it's 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 in a way, it's a hard case to make. But that's also, as a contrarian, you can also say, well, that's the reason you should have some, is that we know these things are cyclical. And historically, value has actually done a little bit better than growth. And I wouldn't bet the ranch that that's going to happen. But as you imply, it doesn't make sense to completely avoid it because, There are other times when value has done much better than growth. Uh, If we go back to some other bear markets and some other rallies, value often has had long runs against growth. And so uh, when you think about diversification, that's the whole point is you want to have these different elements that do well at different times. So I don't think you want to give up on value.
2: And how about foreign stocks? That's been a tough case to make for investors about why they should keep the faith in maintaining a globally diversified portfolio. But let's talk about your perspective on that issue.
7: Yeah, I think it's another area where uh, you go in these cycles and and the U.S. has done better than most foreign markets uh, lately. And then, of course, on top of that, uh, the foreign markets sold off with the U.S. markets in February and March. So people might say, well, there's no point to diversification if they're all going to go move the same. Uh, but again, over the long cycles, we see foreign do, often does do better than the U.S., so I don't think it makes sense to avoid uh, foreign. If you think about uh, some of the great global brands, some of the great global companies, some of those are foreign. You think about some of the really strong growing economies like in China, and do you really want to avoid those? I, I don't think you should. Uh, so again, I think it makes sense to have some in foreign.
2: So for investors who want to make sure that they have exposure to these two unloved areas, you brought a few picks that bring both foreign stocks and value together. So some foreign value-leaning uh, stock funds. So let's start with the first one. That's Causeway International Value. It's gold-rated. Performance doesn't look that great, uh, certainly year-to-date, but you and the team have liked it for a long time. Let's talk about kind of the thesis for this fund, Russ.
7: Our, our basic thesis is uh, good people, good strategy, but a strategy that's been out of favor for a while, and that's why you see poor performance. Uh, Harry Hartford and Sarah Ketterer have been running this strategy for a long time, and the long-term record is good, and they had a good record uh, at a previous fund, but the more recent record here is is not good. Uh, but I think, I think uh, they've got a, a very disciplined value approach that I think just really Uh, works well for long haul. And when value and foreign equities do come back, uh, I think this fund has a lot of potential.
2: Okay. So this is one I know that has historically downplayed emerging markets equities. Is that still still the case?
7: That's right. Uh, They have the unusual feature of uh, avoiding emerging markets in this fund, which uh, makes it a little bit different uh, from your typical foreign fund, which might have uh, five to 10 or 15% in emerging markets. So if you do go for this fund, you're going to want to find a, a dedicated emerging markets fund to add your portfolio, most likely.
2: Okay. Um, let's talk about Dodge & Cox International Stock, also gold-rated uh, foreign stock fund uh, in the international large cap value category. Let's talk about why you and the team like this one.
7: That's right. This is another one where uh, it's probably a hard sell because the, the record's not been great, uh, but... Really all the fundamentals are there for this fund. Uh, Dodge has great managers. It's, it's very much a team approach, great analysts uh, who really make a career there uh, and, and really a good discipline value approach. Not quite as deep value as, as Causeway, but uh, they do like financials which have been hit hard. Um, but, but long-term, this is just a very good fund. Virtually all the managers have a, a million dollars or more of their own money in the fund. And so I think really an appealing fund, nice low expense ratio, which I love in an actively managed fund. Uh, so a, a lot of appeal outside of the recent performance.
2: One thing I noticed with this fund, Russ, is that it has a really nice yield. And I know a lot of people, especially retired folks like yield. Is that a reason to investigate uh, foreign stocks? Are the yields sometimes more attractive?
7: Oh yeah, especially after this sell-off, you do right. get a good yield. Um, so I don't think you you don't want to go out and screen on the highest yielding foreign equity funds, because that would be uh, a really bad idea. But I do think it is a nice, appealing way to add a little income, especially now when a lot of uh, your core bond fund yields have, have declined significantly, especially anything with government. So it's a nice way to, to add a little bit of income. Obviously, you have to recognize that unlike those core bond funds, you've got a lot of uh, risk involved, and this is a long-term investment. But I do think it is an appealing way that to get some income that people have probably overlooked.
2: Okay. Your last pick is T. Rowe Price International Value in contrast with the first two, which I think we've talked a lot about over the years. This one um, may be a little less familiar. Let's talk about the thesis for this bronze-rated fund.
7: Oh, yeah. It is, it is a different story here. Uh, it's bronze-rated, not gold, and it's Uh, only recently upgraded to bronze from neutral. Uh, The reason is uh, T. Rowe was kind of in portfolio manager limbo for a while with this fund uh, as they brought in some interim managers and said they weren't sure who was going to run it long-term. And then they broke from the T. Rowe mold. They hired Colin McQueen uh, from outside uh, of T. Rowe. Uh, He's someone with a 30-year track 30 years of industry experience. So very good experienced manager with a good track record at multiple stops prior to T. Rowe. So even though uh, he only came on board in 2019, we still have a lot of confidence. And of course, T. Rowe's got very good analysts. Uh, It's a fairly straightforward value fund of uh, looking for good companies with good financials that happen to be temporarily out of favor, but we see a lot of potential there.
2: Russ, thank you so much for being here to provide these picks and to share your perspective on international and value investing. You're welcome. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com.
0: That does it for this week's Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal.